If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Women Physicians Lead, hosted by Dr. Lisa Herbert, helps women physicians move from surviving to thriving in their personal and professional lives. Dr. Lisa shares leadership tips, burnout support, stress management strategies, and inspiration from women physicians who've made remarkable transitions into leadership roles. There's a fantastic episode that you should check out called Taking Care of Yourself During the Journey, about how women physicians can care for themselves while on their leadership journeys. Check out Women Physicians Lead on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome. This is Medicine in America, a podcast that will share the stories of physicians and other healthcare professionals who are changing the way they practice. We will hear what made them realize they had to reinvent and rethink their approach to treating patients. My name is Anthony Manson. I'm a 20-year-plus veteran of the healthcare industry, and I'm being joined today by my co-host and longtime friend and colleague, Todd Harrington. Hi, everyone. We have an incredible guest today. Her name is Dr. Lara Bowler. She's been practicing cardiology in New York City for about 20 years. She's also an entrepreneur, and she just recently launched her new innovative cardiology practice, which really focuses on personalizing care for her patients. Without further ado, let's get started. Hello, doctor. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you both for having me. Sure. Great. Dr. Bowler, could you tell us just a little bit about your journey in terms of where you got started and, and the different types of practices you've worked in and what led you to say, I need to go out on my own. I need to be more focused on my patients and what they really require. Absolutely. So I started thinking about being a doctor at age three. <laughs> my father was <laughs> a cardiologist. So yeah, I knew. I knew right away. <laughs> lucky, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I do feel lucky. He, my father was my biggest inspiration and I was always enthralled with what he did. He would bring me with him. He was in his own private practice in Washington, D.C. and he would bring me with him on weekends because he, he, you know, he worked all the time. He was a solo practitioner until he ended up getting a couple of partners. So I spent a lot of time in the hospital with him. If I wanted to see him, I had to go to the hospital. It really impressed me when people would come up to him and say, do you know your, your father saved my life? Wow. And I thought, wow, that looks like a really good job. <laughs> I'd like to do that. And I really stuck with it. And I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. And in fact, when I finished all of my training, which I did in New York City, I went back to Washington, D.C. to practice with my father for four years, which was the most incredible, incredible thing. That must be, that's like a movie. I mean, I loved program. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. I loved it. Great story. That started my journey in actually the practice of cardiology. And during that time, my husband, who lived in New York, we commuted every weekend. We had two children. Busy life. <laughs> I was on a, an airplane, the Delta shuttle with two babies under two for, you know, four years. And it became very, very hard. So I decided to move back to New York with, of course, my father's blessing. He said, you're crazy. What are you doing? Go back to New York. And at that time, I joined another private practice. This was a basically an interventional cardiology practice, which I did general cardiology as well as interventional cardiology. Interventional cardiology is stents, angioplasties. Basically, it's a procedural-based specialty. That practice ended up getting bought by Lenox Hill. And Lenox Hill ended up getting bought by, but it's a huge, huge corporation. And then I was there for many, many years, just like because of inertia. And I was happy and I liked the people. But after 
several years there, it started getting a little frustrating and, and I decided to go out on my own. Interesting. And what, what was the frustrations? Just curious about corporate medicine. So, you know, I had tried, I had been in private practice. I'd been in almost every type of practice just because of the story I told you. And in the corporate medical practice, it really is about the bottom line for the corporation. The people that are in charge, the real people in charge are not doctors. They care that you see a certain number of patients. They care that you generate a certain number of what they call RVUs, which are work units. It wasn't the type of medicine I wanted to practice after a while. I very much kept my private practice skills up because I don't sit in front of a, a patient with a computer. I will talk to the patient and I'll go in my office and, and type it on the computer. I think that's very impersonal. You know, I, I yeah. won't limit my visit to 15 minutes. If I'm running late for the next patient, oh, well, I, I won't do that. But that's how really corporate medicine is practiced. And I, I don't want to wait three weeks for my patient to get a stress test. If I want to get a stress test, I want to get it right away. There are many things that I knew didn't have to be that way because I had done it a different way in the past. And I finally made the move and and decided to go out on my own. That's not to say that there aren't good quality doctors. The doctors I worked with were excellent. I loved my staff. Everything about it was great, except I did not like that way of practicing. Mm-hmm. And do you feel the patients get excellent care even in that environment? I think they get good care. I'm not sure the personalized attention that I really enjoy is there when when it's set up that way. I think that all the doctors cared. I think the patients were cared for. I don't think any any bad things slipped through the cracks. It just wasn't the way I wanted to do it. Bedside manner was a little different. Yeah, yeah. I, I really believe in the patient-doctor relationship, and I really have very good relationships with my patients. And if you have to type the note while talking to the patient, which there's something that is missing in that relationship. <laughs> Lately, I was going to the doctors. I see like they don't even, sometimes don't even look up as they're typing. You're going, wait a exactly. minute. Exactly. And there's something so impersonal about it. It doesn't mean your care isn't as good, but I think that there's a special ingredient in being a doctor. And part of that is that personal relationship. And what's your hope for your private practice today in terms of managing the patients and building those relationships? How do you see that working? In terms of the relationships, I feel I have stuck with my own values and I've always made that an important part of my practice, the relationship with the patient. It's a very different structure, my my practice now. New York City, as I'm sure you know, is extremely expensive. And to go out completely on your own and have a full infrastructure, including echoes and stress tests and holters and staff and an office, it's very expensive. It's complex. It's yeah. very complex. And unfortunately, it's very hard to do that and accept insurance, accept Medicare, all of those things. So really, my new practice is an out-of-network practice. And it's very bittersweet because some of my patients are not able to follow me. And, you know, I speak to them on the phone. And of course, I'll help them in any way I can. I have excellent doctors to refer them to. But it is a bittersweet process. Having said that, I love that I could spend an hour. I do. Every patient that I see as a new patient, I spend an hour. Sometimes I'll spend longer. I'm able to on the fly, do a stress test. I'm able to, you know, give them my cell phone because it's manageable. Is it not beholden to uh, the insurance company and all that? Exactly. I, I, yeah. I, I'm not. And I found myself many, many a time over the past 15, 20 years talking to someone at an insurance company who is not a practicing physician, who's deciding if the test I ordered is appropriate or not. 
and you know, it's, it's, it's not okay. (laughs) So, so that type of thing, I don't have to do that anymore. And it's so freeing to me. It's Mm -hmm. just really freeing. And how long have you had your, on this private practice open? It is very new. I started in November and then we had a few weeks of renovation. So it's only been a few months, but I can tell already and I see the light. I can tell that this is working for me. Mm -hmm. It's something that it wasn't a rash decision, but it was a plunge I had to take. It's a, it's a big jump. Did you have any trepidation about it or hesitation? Yeah. I mean, there's always a risk that, you know, what if no one sends me any patients? Because <laughs> what if no one wants to come see me? Because, you know, it is a very different referral base. The doctors sending me patients are different doctors than the ones sending me patients in my old practice. So I do know a lot of people. I've been in New York for a long time. But it's, I do have to start from ground zero and, and work at it, but I don't mind that. It's worth it to me. Was it a large upfront investment? I was extremely, extremely lucky. In general, yes, it is a large upfront investment. And I was actually planning on doing that. I have several friends that are already doing their own cardiology private practices. And to get a lay of the land, I called a lot of them to say, how does this work? How do you do it? How do you think about it? And several of them said, oh, why don't you join us? Why don't you join us? But it, it it didn't appeal to me. I really wanted to do my own thing. However, one of the people I spoke to who I now am sharing space with, she said to me, listen, I've known you for 20 years. We actually went to the same college, believe it or not. Uh, okay. We did the same college, same fellowship. She said, I have a huge office. I have a full staff. I have every piece of equipment you could want. Why don't you just come share the overhead with me and we can work together? And that was literally absolute no-brainer. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I, I, I'm so happy that that happened. I made the right decision and it's working out perfectly. I'm sure that's better everything up. Yeah. I've heard there's some companies out there that are offering credit lines to physicians who are starting their own practices. Are you aware of those? Or? I'm not aware of those. However, I'm sure that's true. And I think there are also a lot of organizations that will help you set up your quote-unquote concierge practice or private practice, and then you're somewhat beholden to them in some way. I don't, you know, I haven't looked into that, but I do know that's out there. Right. And given interest rates are up, you know, obviously loans are expensive today. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it would have definitely been a very expensive, much scarier proposition to do it completely on my own. So I'm really, I feel really fortunate that it worked out this way. I mean, also, I think that you're bound to get more patients. I, I read something that there's going to be increase in a need for cardiologists between now and 2025. By 2034, I read people 65 and older will account for 42% wow. of, of the need for physicians and for cardiologists. So you're probably going to get a lot of business. Yeah, that's you know, amazing. I mean, it's, it keeps growing. And, and, you know, what are the... We know in certainly managing cardiovascular conditions, there's a lot of barriers to good outcomes, compliance, you know, diet, exercise. There's so many different factors that that come into it. In your practice, are you trying to address some of those other non-clinical, but yet very important variables? Definitely. So as I mentioned, I'm trained in interventional cardiology, as well as obviously general cardiology. So I've seen the, the end point of what can happen? I've, I've seen, you know, people come in with heart attacks. I've done hundreds of patients that have had heart attacks and stented them. I've seen patients that have, you know, significant coronary artery disease and end up needing bypass surgery or angioplasties. So I've seen that end almost more than the front end. And it gives me a very unique perspective because 
Although, yes, I am still seeing patients that have coronary artery disease, not a question. I'm also seeing patients and I can catch them earlier and I can help prevent an issue. So we have the the woman that I'm sharing space with and working with is actually a preventative cardiologist. So we have a lot of equipment that is incredibly helpful to me. One of them is called a CPEP machine. It's a cardiopulmonary exercise stress test. And it can actually look for what we call microvascular disease. And that can happen before you even form plaque in your coronary arteries. And that is something that we can reverse. We can actually reverse it with exercise and and other interventions. So if I have someone come in and we do a CPET and we see that they actually do have microvascular disease, I can give them a specific exercise prescription, have them come back in three months and you can see the reversal. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> so I feel very lucky that I can not let them get to the point where they're going to need an interventional cardiologist. Yeah, right. It's really exciting and it's, and it's real. You know, I see the data and it's real. So, although yes, I'm seeing a lot of coronary artery disease and, and I, and that's my bread and butter. I feel like I have an opportunity to really change the landscape, at least for my patients with coronary artery disease. It's interesting that, you know, you think about men having heart attacks, but it's still the number one cause yep. of death in women. Mm-hmm. So, and with all the, the state-of-the-art medication and procedures, can you comment on that? It seems amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, for a long time, women have been neglected. I remember when I was first working in Washington, D.C. with my father, I got called to the emergency room. To, they wanted me to clear the patient to let her go home. They told me she was having an anxiety attack. They'd given her out of van. She felt better. Can I just come? You know, just so the ER always wants a cardiologist to clear someone before they go home. And I I went down and I said, could I see her EKG? No one had even looked at her EKG. She was in the midst of a heart attack. Oh, my God. We sent her up. We stented her. It ended up on like the news because, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't news to me because that's a problem, especially in women. I think it's getting a little better. But a lot of times women will come in and say, look, I'm having these symptoms. I think it's just anxiety. And my answer 100% of the time to them is it might be anxiety. But to me, anxiety is a diagnosis of exclusion. I need to make sure there's nothing else going on. If we look at everything and you're fine, okay, let's treat you for anxiety. But you can't assume it's anxiety. That's the first issue. The second issue is women are not aware that heart disease is their number one killer. They think breast cancer, you know, ovarian cancer, things that you hear about that are very scary but they don't realize that one in three women have heart disease. Women, especially after menopause, they 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 lag about 10 years behind men in terms of coronary artery disease. They're, they're somewhat protected with estrogen, but after menopause, they pretty much catch up with the lipids and all of the other risk factors with men. That's again, an awareness issue that some people don't know. And lastly, women actually have smaller vessels than men. They're just smaller people. And so it doesn't take as much plaque <laughs> <laughs> to, right, to block right. those vessels. So, you know, for all of those reasons, you have to take it very seriously. I do think things have gotten better over my, you know, 20 years of practice. I have seen people take it more seriously, but I still have a lot of women who put themselves last. You know, they're, maybe they're having a little chest pain, but they got to get their kid to school or they got to, right. you know, make sure that something happens and they don't think, wow, I'm having a heart attack. There's something wrong. They They could have different symptoms as well. They don't always have the classic chest pain, you know, elephants sitting on their chest. They can have jaw pain. They can have shortness of breath, even just sweating with mild exercise, which might not be their normal state. So there, there are so many red herrings and so many things that contribute to that. But yes, it is, it is a big problem. And awareness is probably the most important thing. 
we've been talking to a lot of other physicians who really have come to that that fork in the road with corporate medicine being dominant today yeah, and saying, you know, I can be an entrepreneur. I think I can do this. Could you talk a little bit about what you would say to somebody, you know, who's sure. going through that fork in the road, burnout? I got to do something different. I have to make a change, be better for my patients. Well, you know, entrepreneurship can take many forms and, and even just being in a private practice is definitely a form of entrepreneurship. But for me, I never planned on being an entrepreneur. I got into that because out of need for myself, out of a problem I couldn't solve for myself. I was 35. I was in the practice in DC and I wasn't able to get pregnant. And I basically read every everything I could read on it. I didn't understand why I wasn't getting pregnant. I, I was healthy, but I was, th- I was thinking maybe it's my age. I don't know what's wrong. And I read a ridiculous book called How to Get Pregnant Fast. <laughs> and it's literally said wow. like, have sex with the lights on, run around three times and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, it was, it was, I was <laughs> oh, like, well, how no. could I be reading this? I am a doctor. Why am I reading this book? But one of the chapters said, take cough syrup for the five days prior to ovulation because that will thin out the cervical mucus and the sperm can get to the egg easier. And I thought, I have never heard of this. I mean, what is this? But what the hell? Why not try it? I mean, I, what what do I have to lose? So yeah, I ran no out and got some. Enough. Exactly. Yeah. I ran out, got some Robitussin. And that month, it had been my six month trying, realized, oh my God, I'm 35. I have seen infertility specialist. So I call this doctor up to the office and they said, there's a six-month waiting list. I'm like, I need to see him tomorrow. I was crazy. <laughs> so they let me in. My husband flies in from New York at 6 a.m. on the 6 a.m. shuttle. We're in the guy's office. They take my blood. And he's telling me, we need to start these medications. I need to do these tests. You're going to do these procedures. And I said, I'll do whatever I need to do. I want a baby. Bring it on. I'm good. <laughs> and the nurse walks right. in and says, stop, stop everything. You're pregnant. You're pre- oh, my God. And I oh said, my God. really? And I said <laughs> to the guy, I was so For embarrassed because I barged in there. I said to the guy, you know, I did something different this month than the other six months. He goes, did you take cough syrup? And I said, yes. He goes, that's why you're pregnant. Uh, and I thought, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I've I know. heard a lot of other, well, other right. things. More women know about that. It's amazing. I've heard yeah. about certain positions and things like that. <laughs> exactly. But I, and all of that I stuff was in this book. That. Okay. So <laughs> that, by the way, was the premise of my first company, Preg Prep. There are eight, actually eight randomized clinical trials showing the active ingredient that I used was N-acetylcysteine, thins out the cervical mucus and you're three times more likely to get pregnant, especially if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is one of the main infertility problems. So there's all this literature on it. So anyway, I started a company called Preg Prep and we ended up in 17,000 stores. I started because I said, I cannot believe I am a doctor and a woman trying to get pregnant and I don't know about this. And all these OBGYNs are telling their patients to go out and get cough syrup. So that was my first company. It wasn't because I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't even care if I made money on it at that point. I just thought this is something that women should have. And after I did that, I got a lot of press. I was, you know, I was on Good Morning America. I was in like all these magazines. I had multiple TV shows, all this stuff. And after that, I had doctors coming out of the woodwork asking me, how did I get an idea from my head to the shelf of CVS. How did that work? Yeah. How do you do that? Not simple. Not simple. It took a long time, but I wasn't in a rush, but it did take a long time. And at that point, I have I have three children. I had a full-time interventional cardiology practice and I had this company and I just didn't have the bandwidth to be part of another company. I gave everyone advice. I would help anyone that wanted help. The problem with most of these ideas that these doctors had were they were brilliant. They were incredible. They can do something amazing, but only four people in the world could use it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, they were oh, good yeah. business ideas. And, and it was hard right. to explain hard it to, to a lot of them. Too. Yeah. Yeah. But about five years ago, I got contacted by the doctor that did the research that led to Viagra. And he said to me, I have a product. I have it patented in the U.S., Asia, Europe. It's for erectile, to help with erectile function. Every man in the world could use it and you take it every day for the rest of your life. And I have, you know, multiple studies on it. Would you want to help me with this? And this one I said, yeah, this one I want to help you with. So that's my company now. And that's what I've been on the side, Incredible. you know, working on. You've been, you've been very fortunate with that, with that kind of... Yeah, really, really, really fortunate. Most people, like, if they're full full day working as a doctor thought of then trying to develop a plan for their own business seems a little daunting. Yeah. The second time around, it's actually so much easier because I, I know how things work now. I know how to, you know, get right. it manufactured, where to have a fulfillment center, how to, you know, I know all of the operational stuff. And we're in fact almost finished with a placebo controlled double blind study on the product. I think our last patient will be enrolled this week. So I'm going to have even more studies on it and we'll see what happens. But it's it's an incredible product. It's called Revactin. I get really excited when I think about if we had more and more doctors who understood how to get started, not to go on Shark Tank, but <laughs> but how do they get started and, and go down that track to say, okay, I want to be a great doctor, but if I see things that I think could help, why not? Exactly. I, I think it's great. Yeah, I think part of this podcast is for people to hear others, like Anthony said, just that you've done it and can be done and mm-hmm. rather just keep it there. They're unhappy in their current situation. Like it, if they have an idea, mm-hmm. it's doable. Definitely. It right. definitely is. I mean, I love the story of CityMD. Not that I'm saying it's the, it's the best urgent care center in the world. I'm not endorsing them. But, you know, Richard Park, who founded it, told a great story about how he worked in his parents' photomat. If you remember photomats where you drive up. I do remember. And get your film developed. And <laughs> yes. within, within 24 hours, you'd have your photos before cameras, of course, uh, digital cameras. But, you know, he said when he was working in the ER, he said he just couldn't believe how inefficient it was. And he said it was not patient-centric or customer-centric. And he said, I knew I could revise this entire ER to make it much more patient-centric. It's brilliant. And brilliant. That, and, and he said, I, I get it. When you work on a photo mat, you know, it's all about the customer. And uh-huh. so he basically went out, helped get raise money for City MD. And then of course the rest is history. It's a very successful model. And now uh-huh. urgent care is, you know, everywhere. A multi-billion dollar everywhere. business yes. today. But I just think it's like the the physician sees it. Yes. Because they live it every single day. They see where the inefficiencies are. Four more of them had understood business they probably would help fix some of those things. That's brilliant. And I think it's all about you have an idea and you act on it, you know? When you say they're they're burnt out, it's, I think that's a hard place to start in terms of being an entrepreneur. If you're looking for an idea, it's it's much harder you're starting burnt, to yeah. make that happen. I think it has to be almost organic or natural. It is. Something happens, you say, wow, wait a second, I can make this better or this is not efficient or however you want to look at it. Can I ask one more question? Sure. About technology, I was right before we got on, uh, I was reading about heart flows. This non-invasive personalized cardiac test provides unprecedented visualization of each patient's coronary arteries. Yeah, it's the same as clearly. I do uh, know about okay, it. Okay, okay. That, that sounds like clearly. Like so fascinating. In general, when we, we in the past, and, and I still use them all the time, we do CTAs, which are CAT scans of your coronary arteries. And you can see, is there a blockage or is there not a blockage? But with the 
clearly, which I think is what Harflow is. I don't know the, the brand Harflow, but it sounds like the same thing. You can actually see what is what are the blockages made of? How much is this calcium? How much is vulnerable plaque, this soft plaque that can rupture and cause a heart attack? And if you can visualize that even more so with the one I know is, is again, I'm, hopefully I'm talking about the same thing you're talking about. Basically, you can help, number one, tailor your therapy with lipid therapy if someone has a lot of soft plaque. You're going to bring that wow. LDL down even lower than 70, maybe 50. Game changer. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's, it's a very, yeah. very new AI. It's very, very interesting. Now, I'm a late adopter of things because I like to make sure... I like to see it play out. So I've been using real, you know, regular CTAs, but you can actually send them after the CTA is done to this service and they can break it down for you. Oh, wow. I'm always really cautious with new stuff, but it it does seem to have a lot of promise. So here's a question for you. If you were invited to give a speech at a medical school graduation event, (laughs) what words of wisdom would you impart to the next generation of doctors? Oh, I like that question. I have to say, follow your heart. I've always loved being a doctor, even when it was, you know, I was feeling this corporate kind of push on my head because I really feel it is a privilege that people will come to me, will listen to me, will trust me with their, with their health, with their life. And I think that's the key to being a good doctor. You shouldn't go into it because you think you're going to make a lot of money because number one, you're not going to make a lot of money. You shouldn't go into it because you think it's incredibly prestigious because sadly, I think the prestige has very much gone down in terms of, you know, how people think of doctors. You should do it because you want to help people and you want to make a difference. And if that's truly what you want, you'll be happy your whole life. I've never not wanted to be a doctor. I have, I have some friends that would rather not be doctors. You know, maybe they're burnt out. Maybe they just don't love it anymore. But I've never felt that way. I deeply believe every patient that comes to me, it's a privilege for me. I've always felt that. Even when I had like, you know, a zillion patients on my schedule, I take it very seriously. And I really believe if that's your attitude, you'll always be happy in that profession. It doesn't mean you can't do something else on the side, do just something entrepreneurial or even work part-time or however you want to do it. But it's so gratifying. It's so satisfying. And I... I've always loved it. And I have to say, you know, that's something I learned mostly from my father. He loved his patients. He he was the real deal. He was brilliant and compassionate and had incredible bedside manner and communicative. And, you know, it's something that I aspire to be. And I hope that everyone that goes into that profession also feels that way. Do you think that because someone like your father and yourself, I mean, is that, I don't want to say it's a dying breed, but do you think a lot of med schools from your finger on the pulse of things uh-huh. or you think there are less and less people interested in being a doctor because they're frustrated from what they're reading? That's a great question. I spoke, so as I said, I'm very involved with my medical school and I recently spoke with my the dean of the medical school. I, I meet with her every six months and I said, what what's motivating these kids to go into med school? You know, it's very expensive. It's a very long road. It's hard to get into. You work your butt off. You don't make a lot of money. Like why? Why? Who are they? And she said, these are people that want to do good. I don't know if it was always that way, but she, you know, maybe it was, but that's her vision of who is applying. These are people that want are do-gooders. They're not looking for a lot of money. They're not looking for, you know, prestige. They just want to do good. That is contrasted with, I have a, many, many friends that are doctors that say, I tell my kids they shouldn't be a doctor. And that crushes me when they tell me that. They say, it's, it's so hard. I'm so exhausted. Uh-huh. It's not compensated as well as other things could be. 
And I tell them, don't do it. And I would never, in fact, I have three kids. My daughter, who's my youngest, said she wants to be a doctor and nothing would bring me more joy. But I think there's a difference between the people that are in it right now, in the grind, in the exhaustion, especially after COVID, versus, you know, these bright, new, fresh, idealistic college kids. I think there's a difference. So that that always makes me sad when I hear that. But I think it's the best profession in the world. I don't think there's anything more gratifying to save someone's life is, yeah. you know, I, oh gambling doesn't do it for me. You know, it, it, my kids are uh, like, oh, are you going to go gambling? That's not exciting for me. I don't get nearly uh, as much of a rush that if I save someone's life, I, I can't recreate that. We need more doctors. I mean, I think we're, if you look at the numbers, the number of doctors that we need, especially in rural areas, still uh-huh. even with telehealth and all the wonderful technology we have today, we're still, we're not there yet in terms of the numbers. And it goes back to all those loans you mentioned. I mean, well, they should be relieved. I mean, shouldn't there be a certain number of doctors that that are basically get a free ride every year? Exactly. Yeah. The government should, or the state somehow, it should get paid for. There are programs for rural areas in which mm-hmm. they pay for your med school Good. and then you go and serve that area for a certain number yeah, of years. Yeah, just like the army and military. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They're definitely, I, I know people that have done that. And I'm convinced that, that it's the kind of occupation, just like nurses. I mean, you're born to do yes. that. There's something it's a about calling. it in you because you yeah, wouldn't put it's up. A gift. Yeah, it's a calling. Yeah. You wouldn't put up with yeah. that. All the frustration is you love to save, care for people and save people's yeah. lives. It's just something that's in your DNA. So it's thing. true. It's true. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Medicine in America. We have a lot more episodes coming, so please don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast player and also rate and review the show. Also let your colleagues and friends know about it. And if you'd like to find out more about Medicine in America, go to our website, medicineinamerica.org. I'd like to thank our special guest today, Dr. Lara Bowler, and of course my co-host, Todd Harrington. And a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm your host, Anthony Manson. Until next time.